Welcome to Energy Transitions, a podcast brought to you by Endless Europe and Friends. In this series, we will spotlight the people and projects driving change and innovation in Europe's energy sector. You can download this and all other episodes on endlit-europe.com slash podcasts. Now, let's start today's conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this podcast brought to you by Inlet Europe and Power Engineering International. I'm Pamela Larg, your host for today's episode about perovskite solar cells and their impact on power generation around the world. I'm joined by three experts on the cutting edge of this field, uh, Laura Schellis and Joseph Berry from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in the US, and Henry Snaith, physics professor in the Claridon Laboratory at the University of Oxford. You can find out more about our speakers in the bios below. But let's dive straight into this interesting topic. Laura, my first question is for you. You know, as more and more people gain interest in perovskite solar cells, uh, you know, it's just our, our readers are just wanting to know more about it. It's, it's a fascinating topic. Can you give us an overview? overview? What is perovskite and what is the stage of development? What's, what's happening in the world of perovskite right now? Yeah, thanks, Pamela. So perovskite is a bit of a loaded question because it does have a very specific meaning and we don't always use it 100% correctly. Um, in my opinion. So uh, a perovskite really means a specific arrangement of atoms into a crystal. So it's a specific crystal structure. Even more specifically, it's a calcium titanate. Now, when we say perovskites, we're talking about the halide containing uh, usually lead type of this material. Um, so we've gotten used to just saying perovskite and having people understand what that means. Um, but it does have a specific meaning. Um, in the context of solar, uh, these things were discovered a number of years ago or kind of first started working on from David Mitzi. Um, and Joe, can you remind me what it was he was looking at those materials for at the time? Yeah, yeah, he was doing... Um... Basically, I believe it was a methylmonium tin iodide system for transistors on that IBM. And there's like, what, a patent in 1999 on a two-step deposition approach for for some of those tin-based compounds, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and so then at a point, uh, people started looking into these same materials as a dye and a dye-sensitized solar cell. And I think Henry was right there in the action <laughs> in transitioning this. So I think, Henry, you have to tell the story as to kind of how we got to where we are today. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, I mean, there was, so there was the early work, as you mentioned, from Mitzi and colleagues at IBM, where they, they were looking at transistors and also even LEDs using mm -hmm. some of these materials, some of these sort of related metal halide perovskites. But it was really the, the first time they were used in a what could be considered a solar cell. Some some work from um, some Japanese investigators led by uh, Professor Tom Miyasaka from Tuan University, Yokohama, um, and they took little nanocrystals, made nanocrystals or precipitated crystals of the perovskite on a porous photoanode. This was a, a structure, interdigitated sort of mesostructured solar cell that at the time, as you mentioned, Lara, was called a di or is a disensitized solar cell. Um, 
they worked for they they managed to get about three percent efficiency, which was pretty good for a sort of new sort of material and device. But the, they sort of infiltrated them with an electrolyte, as was the 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 method at the time, and they sort of dissolved the perovskite. So they lasted a few seconds. I think they sort of had to measure them pretty quickly under the light. Um, um, and I, I I don't want to sort of say a diatribe of what what we specifically did. But um, basically, we, we collaborated with Tom Miyasaka and his group and learned the recipe of how to make these perovskites. And actually, what we found was that we could process them just as a solid, thin polycrystalline layer. And if we sandwiched that layer of polycrystalline perovskite, and when I say thin, it's sort of a, about a micron, half a micrometer in thickness. So, so not on the nanoscale, but, but thin for, con con compared with things we're used to thinking about. Um, Sandwich that basically between two electrodes. The, these electrodes are sort of uh, modified, let's say, so that they allow current to flow in one direction. And we, we found very quickly we could get really high efficiencies, so above 10% efficiency and even up to 15. And this so-called planar heterojunction um, architecture, or you might call it a sandwich structure device, um, turned out to be quite an important step to then driving really high efficiency from these materials. And the, the, the surprising fact sort of effect was that in a solid layer, so these, these sort of micron thicknesses, much thicker than we thought a material like this would operate efficiently in a solar cell. The, the notion was that the, the material, because it's processed so simply and so easily, would have a very short carrier diffusion length. The charges in it wouldn't go very far before they get lost or trapped in defects. So the, the, the observation of very good efficiency under these, these sort of relatively thick films was really surprising. And that led to a lot of interesting studies looking at defects and why these materials behave so well, even though they're simply processed from solution. Wow, there's a lot more science behind perovskite than I think, well, that what I, what I could have imagined. So thank you, uh, Henry and and Laura and Joe, for just giving us some background and I think just really introducing, you know, what makes perovskite so special. And I think, you know, if I, I I'd like to combine the next two questions because I think what people want to know is how is this technology set apart and and why is it actually creating such a buzz in in the solar market and i'm just going to throw this open to to anybody because i know that all three of you would probably like to weigh in on this <laughs> well i'll i'll maybe mention um right so so this this work that henry did um at his group was one of the reasons why we became very interested in these systems at enrel right i mean uh you know there are a lot of materials out there that kind of act as a solar absorber at a 3% level. But once you start getting to these double digits, it becomes very, very compelling. But another thing that uh, Henry's group at Oxford demonstrated was the tunability of the optoelectronic properties. And when you can tune the optoelectronic properties in the way that they showed, that really opens up a whole uh, range of device architectures that really allow extremely high efficiencies. Right. If you think about common materials like silicon, silicon kind of has the optoelectronic properties it has. You can tune it ever so slightly, but you can't make radical changes. In contrast, things like gallium arsenide, uh, which are known as the 3-5 compound semiconductors, you can tune the band gap very broadly. And these are kind of perfect solar materials, uh, but they're insanely expensive and they're very difficult to process. So 
they're kind of reserved for applications like Mars rovers and satellites and stuff like this. And Henry kind of really showed that you could make these materials tunable in a similar kind of way, which now opened up a lot of opportunities for not only perovskites as a, a standalone technology, but to really add to existing PV technologies to improve their performance in a way that, you know, um, you could realize potentially at scale because of the solution processing or even vapor phase processing, uh, which is another another area that, that people are looking at pretty hard, uh, strongly. Yeah, so to build on that a little bit, I think what Joe's alluding to here is some of the advances we're seeing in solar cells right now. So traditionally, solar cells are what we call monofacial. So they're just collecting light from one side of the panel. So what we're looking at now is we're starting to make things bifacial. So you actually can collect light from both sides, but that only gets you so far in terms of kind of adding to the potential um, of the energy that we can get out. So the next thing that we need to do is start making what they call tandem structures. And this is where you actually stack different materials on top of each other. But in order to do this in an effective way, you have to tune those properties that Joe was talking about. And perovskites are just perfect for this because, as I mentioned before, perovskite is just a specific structure and it can have a crazy range of compositions um, to the point that one of the compositions that we work with at NREL uh, is lovingly referred to as the kitchen sink because it's just everything kind of mixed together and it happens to work really well. So I think that tunability provides something just so different than some of the other materials out there. I guess I'll, I'll probably add as well, um, just looking at the, the PV market and the competition in the PV market, all the, there's a range of different silicon technologies that are out there. So there's, there is a thin film technology, cadmium telluride, um, but 95% of the market silicon. There's a range of silicon technologies which vary in efficiency, and they've all got different acronyms to describe what they are. But basically, the modules now really vary from about 20% up to 22% from the three top type of um, PV technologies. So it's a relatively narrow gap, but that's enough to differentiate in price and market and everything like that. But what everyone would love would be a technology that could go significantly beyond that. And that's where tandem technologies, so going to multiple different absorbers and specifically taking one that can go on top of silicon and um, and boost the efficiency in that way, would, would be amazingly enabling for the industry to then take the next steps forward. And perovskites turn out to be an ideal material for this, for doing precisely this. So this is why industrially it's very exciting that perovskites could offer that next step improvement in efficiency and that that then would drive well firstly differentiation in the market but also enable a continued downward cost in 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 producing electricity from solar because power output per square meter is all important in that calculation sean that's yeah, fascinating that's, sorry yeah, I think please that's very well said. yeah that's very well said by, by henry right i mean if you if you want to be a new PV technology, right, it's a really really steep climb unless you can really add value, um, and the fact that perovskites have that opportunity is is a critical thing, in the kind of context of path to market. Um, you know, there are people like me. We really love our our thin film 
uh, technologies. But as, as Henry pointed out, right, silicon is, you know, 90 plus percent of the market. So if, if you want to go, you if you can go with the, the leader, there's a, a clear advantage there. Thanks for that, Joe. Um, so clearly there's there's a lot of, of market to cover uh, for perovskite. So I think that leads me into my next question. You know, what are some of the use cases that we're going to see? Um, you know, the development of perovskite, you know, is it in terms of LEDs, in terms of paint? I mean, I know that Enrol has also been doing a lot of uh, a lot of research into the various use cases. So I'd be interested to learn a little bit more about that. Do you want to go, Joe? <laughs> or, or Laura? <laughs> <laughs> well, so um, so we've kind of covered what we would call the, um, and Henry talked about, uh, you know, this, this pairing up with silicon is critical to what we call the uh, utility scale terrestrial market, right? And that's, that's really where most of the PV systems uh, essentially are, are deployed, right? And where the most power generation occurs. But, you know, as we're thinking about other ways to improve um, kind of our carbon footprint generally, right, we'd like to uh, apply solar cells in a lot of other uh, applications uh, to, to essentially scavenge energy from, uh, say, low amounts of light. Or there are also these applications like even uh, that I mentioned earlier where we deploy currently very, very expensive technologies, right? Being able to drop that expense is obviously something that that uh, people who make satellites would love to do, especially if they can also gain performance. Um, so, so the fact that proskites are thin films is really kind of enabling for thinking about different ways of integrating uh, those technologies into something that looks like, that is different from utility scale. And when you look into those markets, all of a sudden your value calculation changes, right? Um, if you think about technology adoption, right? at least in the US, you know, we have a fair amount of LED light fixtures now that people are using, but the adoption rate was relatively slow because let's face it, we have electricity that comes out of the wall, right? And, and so the move from incandescence, even though you could make a really strong argument for it, uh, was pretty slow. But if you looked at say people who did camping or uh, applications where, I mean, namely like flashlights, right? LEDs very, very quickly subsumed incandescent kind of bulbs because the value of the electricity that you have in a flashlight in that portable form factor is very, very different than the value when it comes out of the wall. So the fact that you can go to thin films means that you can start thinking about applications that are very different in terms of say the weight or the form factor. And, and there, there's a lot of questions about, okay, well, what's really the value proposition? And you know, I'm a scientist and not somebody who tries to do business too much, but I think there are a lot of opportunities there but exactly how good they are is, you know, I would argue probably a little bit outside my purview, but this value proposition is a key driver there that you have the ability to tap into because you can, because of the fundamental thin film nature of, of perovskites in contrast to say uh, silicon based technologies, just from a mass perspective, right? While you could think about say putting say silicon cells onto something like a, a satellite, you really don't want to do it because the weight is so important in the cost of basically launching a satellite, right? And so any kind of uh, opportunity to differentiate based on weight or performance is is a place where prospects have some uh, avenues to pursue, I think. I don't yeah, know if that I answers the question. <laughs> to go a little further too, like some of the things that we're looking at 
are like building integrated PV. So this is the idea behind the solar window. So every window on a large building could be what we would call photoactive. So it can actually collect the sunlight and create electricity. Um, and it's enabled by a lot of those things that Joe's talking about and being able to kind of adjust the form factor. And thin films are cool. Um, you can kind of think of them like paint sometimes. Um, so you could really coat it on anything. Um, and then beyond sort of the solar application, you can think of perovskites as potentially being used in LEDs and also detector technologies and things sort of beyond this PV realm. So I think we expect to see these materials in PV first, but it's not going to be the last place that we see them because they have just really great properties like we talked about in the onset. An area, an application that I think is probably going to be um, useful is is automotive, um, basically solar powered cars or solar assisted cars, maybe. Um, and you can do, you know, you can do back of the envelope calculations if you had a 20% efficient module and sort of between three to five square meters of the car could be coated in PV, then, you, you know, you're anywhere from four to six kilowatt hours in a sunny place like Probably, probably uh, Boulder, Colorado today would <laughs> give you quite a few. Maybe you'd be even up at eight kilowatt hours. Um, and you know, and if we if we can increase, the, it's all about efficiency per area as well as lightweight and form factor. But if you can push that up to forty percent efficiency, which I think we will see over the next ten to twenty years, then you're talking about you know maybe even up to twelve kilowatt hours per day from PV. Now, and if you look how far, you know, how far does that drive you in an electric vehicle in, a, in a, one of a today's small electric vehicle? Maybe that would get you something like 20 or 30 miles. Um, that's starting to look like it's making a significant impact. If the efficiency of the vehicles improves, then maybe that can go even further. So it's not going to give you all the power you ever need from a car. You're not going to be able to have a perpetually moving solar powered car, especially not if you want to drive at night. Um, but you will be able to have a situation where maybe you then don't need so much battery capacity or you're just charging less often and, and producing more power directly in the vehicle. So I, I see that as an application that's quite fun and that could actually make a measurable difference. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the going back to the, some of the things that Laura mentioned in terms of the LEDs, right, you know, the ability to make um, solid state lighting more efficient. Uh, is is another huge opportunity because if you look at a lot of the advances there, you know things like like video monitors, particularly on laptops, right? That power consumption again matters to people in a way that's that's different. Just like you know, additional range matters um, in in the context of an electric vehicle, and so those are really kind of interesting applications for the perovskites. I think. Sorry, I interrupted that. Well. No, please interrupt as much as you as you feel is necessary. It's such a it's a broad topic and really interesting. And I feel like in a podcast such as this, we're just touching the surface. Um, and in that sense, you know, it's obviously clear we're in the development stage uh, and perovskite holds a great deal of potential. Um, I just want to throw this question out there. What is the, the potential of this technology in extending electricity access around the world? I mean, I feel like we're in a little bit of a dreaming stage at the moment, you know, obviously testing uh, various applications and efficiencies, et cetera. But where do you see perovskite going? And again, um, Laura, let's start with, with, with you. 
I think that we touched on this a little bit in talking about what it sort of enables in taking the next step in the next generation for PV. We're kind of at a limit with our current technologies. And so if we look at the requirements to getting to 100% uh, renewables and things like that, we do need to have some advancements. Um, and I really think that perovskite is going to help enable it. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily going to be replacing all of our current technologies. I think it's going to be a all hands on deck eventually to get there. Um, and I hope that it happens soon. And I think we're getting pretty close um, with some of the companies being pretty near commercialization. And I think, Henry, you could probably touch on that if you put on maybe one of your different hats right now. <laughs> yeah. So so I'm, I'm also co-founder and chief scientific officer of Oxford PV, which is a company um, building a manufacturing line at the moment to produce perovskite on silicon tandem cells. And um, the, the plan is to have commercial cells and modules being produced next year, so in 2022, and these will be sold sold into the market. Um, the first, you know, the first scale is 100 megawatts, and that it's not going to be cheaper initially than existing technologies. But of course, as this scales, as we, as, uh, we and others move to multiple gigawatts production, because we're producing more, we'll, we'll be producing more power per square meter, this will ultimately lead to a lower cost, you know, reduction in the cost of PV. And if we're looking at the, the rate of deployment, even if the demand for deploying the, the same area of photovoltaics remains unaltered with perovskites, if we're producing more power per square meter, we, we deploy the PV faster per kilowatt hour or per megawatt or terawatt hour. Um, so producing more power gets the deployment done quicker. But of course, what that should also do is push the demand up because it's a better product producing more power at lower cost, which should then accelerate it even further and faster. And when we look to enabling, you know, solving, um, I guess, fuel poverty or there's many, you know, there's, there's more than half a billion people in the world who don't have any electricity at all in some of the poorest countries. And, and the cost of PV electricity is already much less than the cost of electricity from a power station in terms of producing it in the in sunny locations. Um, so as it keeps getting cheaper and cheaper, we'll actually be delivering electricity at a much lower cost and affordable cost to many more people in the world who don't have it or have intermittent sources presently. So this is all about, about powering the world. It's about transitioning away from renewable, away from, sorry, away from fossil fuels, but it's also actually about getting everyone up it, up to a, a level playing field on a standard of living because everyone has access to power. Yeah, I mean, you know, my perspective is that proskites really do represent a, a transformational technology um, for all the reasons that, that Henry and Laura kind of outlined. And, you know, another part of that is this question of sustainability as well, right? When we're thinking about getting to 100% renewables and we're thinking about multi-terawatt scale opportunities for photovoltaics, um, you know, you deploy these things, even in the best case scenario, sooner or later, right? Um, we'll need to take them out of the field and we'd rather not essentially 
be mining always new material to basically produce the next generation of stuff, right? And, and throwing the old stuff away into some landfill someplace. And there are some really unique opportunities, I think, as we think about technologies moving forward that are different than current PV technologies to enable uh, recyclability and reuse at scale. And, and that's another thing that I think is where the prospects again have some unique opportunities that we don't typically see in a lot of the other PV technologies. Interesting. Thank you, Joe. And and yes, I believe that sustainability is 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 really sort of the driving force behind a lot of the research and you know what's what's taking place in in the research labs at the moment. And that kind of brings me on to one of the last questions. Um, Laura, Henry, Joe, what are you working on at the moment? What are your future plans in terms of research, if you can talk about it, uh, in the field of perovskites? What are you busy with and what are you going to be busy with in the near future? I think it would just be interesting to to share that with our listeners. Uh, Henry? Okay, so I'll go first. So, <laughs> so as I mentioned, if I put my commercial hat on, I obviously can't tell you anything that we're doing, but <laughs> apart from the fact we are we are building a manufacturing line for perovskite on silicon tandem cells, and this is what we think is the first product. It offers something better than silicon presently, um, and it's product number one. In my research group, what I'm trying to do is enable the next step beyond that. So in a rather uncreative manner, we're working on triple junction cells. So if we put an extra layer on, we know fundamentally we can actually convert more of the sunlight into electricity. And that gives us an ability to, um, to, to produce more power. So we're working on the compositions and the materials and the, the device structure we need to enable that that could then be the, the next generation of perovskite on silicon. We're also working, ultimately, there's a lot of energy goes into the silicon we're working on trying to actually make all what we call all perovskite tandems or triple junction cells where we use different layers of perovskite with diff that absorb different regions of the spectrum without the need for silicon. This could firstly ultimately make a less expensive technology, um, reduce the reliance on polycrystalline silicon sources, which there are, there are, there's various reasons why you might want to do that. There, 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 there aren't that many companies, there's a handful of companies producing them all or predominantly located in one region of the world. So there could be a lot of incentive to move to a thin film technology that moves away from silicon. And then we're just doing a whole load of fundamental investigations to understand how these materials work, this, the subtleties of them, what makes them break, what makes them strong. You know, stability and longevity is obviously a key requirement. The, the present generation of, tech, of materials and devices are are most likely stable enough to compete with silicon, but we still don't understand too much about these materials and what make what what makes them stable and what causes degradation. So we can we can never do enough upstream advanced research in that area. And I'll, I'll stop talking. I could talk for a lot longer on what we're doing, but I won't. I'll pass pass over to Laura or Joe to. I think they're up to. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to jump in here because Henry, you set me up perfect um, in this question about stability. I mean, I think we hear a lot about that being one of the major barriers um, to entering the market in this technology. But I think I believe I think the guys here would agree with me that uh, fundamentally these materials uh, can be stable. We just need to demonstrate it. So the the exciting research opportunity that we're about to kick off here at NREL in collaboration with Sandia National Labs is uh, 
a center. It's called PACT. Um, and this is a validation and bankability center focused really around field demonstration and understanding um, kind of the long-term stability of these materials once they're in what looks more like a commercial module. Um, so we're going to be working on fielding a bunch of perovskite technologies, um, taking a look at how and when they fall apart and why. Um, and then also kind of coming to a consensus and an agreement on how to test how long these things will last. So in commercial PV now, we have a series of uh, accelerated and qualification tests that give us some sense of whether or not these things are going to last. And that hasn't been developed for perovskites yet. And we need it because unfortunately we don't have time machines really wish we did it would make this a whole lot easier um but yeah that's going to be something that we're going to focus pretty hard on over the next uh four or five years to start to get some of those answers um, i'm really excited to kick that off this summer yeah that's that's a, an exciting project that doe um just kind of launched that uh laura is helping really kind of spearhead and certainly is leading our, our efforts at NREL. So that that's exciting. Um, but for me, I'm I'm a little bit more kind of uh, on the uh, I, I, you know this time machine question, right? We Laura said we don't have it, right? I mean, I mean it's one of those things where we talk a lot about oftentimes for the technology about stability. But if you look at say silicon PV, right? I mean, uh, people are still doing research on how to make uh, silicon modules more stable. Uh, so that's not a finished thing. And so uh, one of the things that we really want to do and that I'm kind of really excited about is the notion that um, being able to basically make material predictions, essentially, about where we'll be in terms of stability. Henry kind of alluded to it, right? We we don't know a whole lot about these materials at a very basic level that allows us to do prediction of, of things like stability at you know, multi-decadal kind of timescales. And so a lot of the work that we're doing in our, what we call our, our core perovskite pro program is focused in around the question of how do we develop essentially metrologies and measurements that allow us to understand the details of the material in a way that lets us know if a particular process approach is gonna produce a device that can in fact be 30 years stable. Put another way, right? When we measure the efficiency of a solar cell, we can do that in five minutes. But now I want a measurement I can do in five minutes that tells me pretty predictively where I'll be in 30 years. And that is a massive material science challenge. And so we're trying to make sure that we kind of understand the materials very, very well across a lot of these different compositions that Henry kind of alluded to. Um, we're mainly, I'm mainly focused on personally, I'm, I'm most interested in some of these applications where we're looking at perovskites as thin film absorbers on their own um, and different manufacturing approaches to basically do that at scale. So those are the things, at least for PV, that I'm excited about. Then there's stuff like LEDs and quantum information processing where we can do some fun stuff uh, with some of these materials as well. And that's also quite exciting. I think if I can just add one more comment as well, and it's it's really just PV is obviously here to stay. You know, we, we, we're we going to have solar power for the next thousand years for sure. And over that time, we will make it a lot better. We will find new materials. We will understand more about it. And, you know, we'll look back to now 
And well, well, we, at some point we'll look back to now. We won't be looking back ourselves in a thousand years, and we'll think how rudimentary our understanding was, and wonder how how did we manage to put together the cells using those materials and those tools and those processes yeah. and deliver stuff that actually worked and powered the world. So totally I think right. there's there's a lot of stuff to do. There's a you know almost an infinite number of things to discover, and there'll be many changes and surprises along the way and and really exciting to be in this area with a new material now on the verge of launching it but it's it's really not job done by any means i always find it entertaining to look back at kind of the history of silicon and like what they fielded as the first modules in silicon right yeah because people take it for granted that you know okay this is and it you know it is a uh a massive technology at this point but if you look at some of the crazy stuff people were doing in version one of these devices it was shocking <laughs> Right? Yeah, <laughs> and, and to think that we're at that point, but yet we, you know, it 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 should really be noted that if you look at polycrystalline thin film PV technologies, perovskites in the last decade have become more efficient than any other thing we've had out there. Not only that, right? This this ability to make other technologies better, there is no silicon solar cell that will ever perform as good as the perovskite silicon tandem. Yeah. Right. I mean, and that's a that's a kind of a remarkable thing. Yeah. Not even in a thousand years time. Right. Because totally. it can't. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 physically. Then, not then our then our 2021 perovskite on silicon tandem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't need a time machine to know that's true. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I can tell you something that is clear to me is just the passion and excitement that comes through from all of you. And it's just. I feel like we should maybe meet up again in a year's time to see, you know, what's been happening. And, you know, we might not have the time machine, but I can guarantee there will be some significant developments over the next year in, in the field of perovskites and the various applications. And it's exciting. And, you know, I just I feel really grateful that we could just share with our audience, you know, what's happening and, and the research and, you know, just share your enthusiasm. I think it's been absolutely fascinating. Uh, we don't have uh, too much more time available, but if there's any last thoughts that you would perhaps like to share, um, now would be the time. Anything that you'd like to maybe uh, just emphasize before we, we close? I mean, I, I, I think just amplifying this last part um, that, that Henry noted and couples to what Laura is kind of most excited about is about this validation center, right? I mean, we really are at the point where some of the best stuff that we do is not stuff that we can talk about because we do it with companies. And I'm sure that's true for Henry as well, which is why this, you know, validating of the technology, you know, there's always risk with new technologies, but really validating it and taking away some of that risk so that we can get it out and start making a difference in the context of CO2, I think is, is hyper exciting to me. Yeah, I think Joe's right. And Pamela, you mentioned talking in a year. I, I can't wait to be a year from now and see really what's going on with the technology because I feel like we are on the cusp of seeing some like really big advancements, which is crazy to say for a technology that has been at just hyperspeed for the last decade. So I don't understand how we can go any faster, but it keeps happening. And yeah, I think it's going to be a really exciting year um, for this technology. And I, I guess I should finish with a final comment. Just watch this space. <laughs> we're working on it and we're going totally. to deliver some pretty cool stuff. And yeah. 
and there's sort of message in general, I guess, to the audience, you know, PV, PV is going to power a significant fraction of our future and let's all just embrace it and, and you know, d deploy as much as we can in whatever form, shape or form. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, well said. Well, I can tell you, we will be watching the space and uh, who knows, hopefully we can meet again in a year's time and, and catch up. But for now, uh, Laura, Joe, Henry, thank you so much for joining us. It has been an absolute pleasure to get to know a little bit more about you and, of course, Perovskite. And I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll speak again soon. Until next time. Cheers. You've been listening to Energy Transitions, a podcast brought to you by Enlit Europe and friends. You can listen again and hear all other episodes on enlit-europe.com slash podcasts. And don't forget to catch up on our other great digital content on our 365 platform, enlit-europe.com.